Sorry, Martin, we're not quite ready to start yet, but um, we'll be there in a minute, Martin. Okay, Martin, we're ready to start now. Hello and welcome to the 368th episode of The Crate and Crowbar, a podcast about PC gaming. It is May the 7th. I'm Alex Wiltshire and tonight I'm joined by Tom Senior. Hello. And Graham Smith. Hello. And let's talk about some video games on the PC platform. You first. (laughs) I've been, I've spent the last week being very entertained about um, a big thing going on about video games on another platform entirely, but which looks like it'll affect all video games and all platforms. Yes, it's the Apple versus Epic Jamboree, which is going on at the moment. It's been enormously fun so far. It's been good for gossip, hasn't it? It really has. (laughs) Secrets spilling out. All over the place. Mostly, I, I, one of the things I'm enjoying thinking about is just how unhappy all the third parties involved must be at this day to come to spilling out. And I actually, you know, and more on a more serious note, a lot of sort of smaller developers, data coming out about their sales and relationships with things like, um, uh, so the uh, one of the things that came out was um, the amount of money given to uh, the the developers of games released for free on the Epic uh, on the Epic Game Store, the number of downloads, the number of acquisitions, <laughs> uh, the kind of percentage of new users um, per acquisition rate divided by the cost, those kind of things. Um, it's totally fascinating data, but I'd imagine <laughs> I would not be very happy about any of it being divulged. Do you think it? Actually matters though. Like I feel like there's a lot of default knee jerk secret secrecy in the games industry. Like, does it hurt any of those indie devs, especially where they, they don't have stockholders, they don't have a stock price to worry about? Does it actually hurt them in any material way that people now know those figures? Yeah, probably not. It's uh, I'd I'd say if I was there, I would say it's fine if I made the choice to make it public. I don't Mm. feel comfortable about the only one of the very few people who've had those numbers made public. If it was everybody, then it's fine. It's like being on a nudist beach, you know, everyone's (laughs) naked. It's fine. But if you're the only naked person on a normal beach, you probably not. And you didn't want to be naked. You probably wouldn't (laughs) be that happy. (laughs) This is true. I can imagine that situation. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, uh, some internal kind of wrangling if you know uh, a developer is expected to make more money than they eventually did then they might look at to what extent the game was advertised in the epic store where it appeared on the store and you could see, i could see it kicking off loads of things like that <laughs> it's kind of an integrity uh problems like that and also maybe if some of those studios and some of those people who made those games wanted to attract funding from external sources in future and they look at this and say oh you, you last this thing didn't sell very well then that does have it's going to have a knock-on effect for future projects yeah. potentially. So yeah, I think it's, it, I guess there's lots of reasons to keep it secret. 
Yeah, and I wonder how much kind of kicking selves there was kind of when you look at um, some of these sort of like mm. wild, wild. I mean, a lot, I think a lot of it actually, it looks wild on paper, but you kind of then look at the situation. Uh, so with, with the, the Epic Games Store, uh, you have examples like um, uh, oh, Fez, um, uh, you know, two and a half million um, entitlements, which is, which is the downloads of uh, Fez, um, and they were sold for seventy-five thousand um, dollars, and uh, Epic uh, got seven hundred and seven thousand new uh, accounts off, off off the back of that. But for seventy-five thousand, it's kind of crazy. And then you got Mutant Year Zero, um, which which had three thousand uh, three million sorry um, entitlements. But but was sold um, to developer for one million dollars, uh, so you know a, a very large amount more, um, and the the number of new accounts based on that were one hundred ninety seven thousand, so only double the amount amount, but a lot 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 more money was paid on it. But when you kind of think about it, well, Fez had been out for a very long time by that point. Uh, Mutant Year Zero hadn't been out for that long, so this is uh, August twenty nineteen. I can't remember when that came out. Probably. It wasn't actually, it was definitely wasn't launch, but it wouldn't have been that, you know, it wouldn't have been out for very long by that point. But, you know, kind of very wildly fluctuating um, figures. Uh, but that, you know, that's kind of one of the things I, I wonder whether, like, some people kind of felt that, that I mean, actually, yeah, one of them, everything, that uh, the kind of the, the, the surrealistic uh, David O'Reilly um, game where you, you can play as a, an elephant or a rock or a car or whatever the hell it was um um zooming in and out of this kind of landscapes you know in and out landscapes and things at scales um that was uh the buyout price was two hundred thousand dollars um but the number of new epic accounts there was um for thirty five thousand um which makes it one of the larger um kind of cost per user acquisition cost um things on, on the on the scale but like yeah i yeah i I'd, I'd it's 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 interesting it's uh wildly i don't know quite what all the there were the for honor one as well that was crazy the thing is you look at the the figures though and even for everything which was the highest the user acquisition cost is pretty low <laughs> like compared to what like delivery and Uber and these sorts of companies often say is their user acquisition costs when figure comes out. Uh, Epic's not spending that much money. Like yeah. uh, like free games are a really good way to get users to sign up versus, you know, podcast advertising forever and ever and ever trying to get people to sign up to Squarespace, that sort of stuff. Yeah, it was $11.5 million, 11 million between... Uh, December 2018 and uh, f- uh, end of September 2019. So, you know, it isn't, yeah, for the number of um, new accounts, which came to 5 million, it's not too bad, I would say. Yeah, on that basis, when you think about what mobile um, game publishers are, are, are yeah, spending yeah. in user acquisition. Yeah, and, and Epic probably have some stat that says that of those users... X amount of them go on to spend twenty dollars, thirty dollars on the store buying a game, yeah. <laughs> you know, which they probably wouldn't have done if they hadn't already signed up for an account. Yeah, and so you know, instantly, if it's only costing them two to four dollars or whatever per user, then a single purchase they make their money back. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
there was the other figure though that came out that makes these figures even more irrelevant was that Fortnite in its first two years of existence has made over nine billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it made just over five billion in its first year, four something billion in its second, and then in 2020 made another five billion. It went back up again. Um, and now, like that last one was most interesting to me because it felt like 2020 was the year when Fortnite stopped feeling like such a big phenomenon. Um, but actually it made more money than ever that year. Yeah. And that's just uh, an insane amount of money. And like you put, you put the other figures, like I think they've spent like, was it like $400 million or something like that on the Epic game store? Uh, you know, and a lot of that was securing exclusives rather than the free games we've just been talking about. Yeah. But even if you add all those numbers together, it doesn't get anywhere close to the nine billion that they made over two years from Fortnite alone. And then and on top of that, they've got revenue from yeah, Epic, you know, the Epic Engine, uh, yeah, the Unreal, Unreal Engine. Engine, yeah, Unreal Engine, and then you know the other companies they've bought like Rocket League and all that sort of stuff, which made you know, I think all those games combined made about a hundred and eight million dollars. I think it was. Yeah. Which is not that much, um, but that's all you know. It's all paying for itself and making profit and stuff like that. Yeah, I think it's going to start launching real life spaceships, and then Tim Sweeney is <laughs> going to host Saturday Night Live. And that's, <laughs> that's our future. I mean, you know, I think when we think about uh, when we think about kind of you know this sort of this war in in the courts between Apple and um, and Epic, I do. I want them both to lose a bit. <laughs> I, it's all it's all pretty bad. Like you know, I, I, Epic. You know, I'm kind of I admire them greatly, and you know that they are doing things that are good for games in general. You know, like the uh, the the what they're trying to do with with some aspects of what they're you know sort of opening up game stores and and charging developers less money for um for for, for, for a less percentage of, of revenue these are these are good things in general um uh the same and, and the unreal engine is a an amazing piece of technology uh which is being new incredibly powerful tools are being bolted onto it all the time you know we talked last week or maybe the week before about uh, metahuman creator which is you know if you're making a game in, in unreal engine you can use it you can if you for a lot of developers especially at indie level you don't have to pay anything at all to release a game and make money off it you know to, to a certain kind of up to a certain bracket you know these are good things um at the same time they it is terrifying that one company right now is sitting in such a place of power across, you know, um, a game store which isn't the biggest in 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 PC gaming by any by a long shot, but looks like it will only gain momentum. Gunreal Engine is currently, you know, the leading engine. The toolset is so rich and so powerful that. If I was a developer, that would be my default choice, and there'd have to be a very good reason not to use it. You know, um, it, when they sit and they, you know they're making one of the most important games in, across all of the all of video games in Fortnite. That that set that power frightens me, <laughs> and um, you know, I, I feel very mixed about it. Essentially. 
but, but having said that, I'm going to undermine what I just said, actually, though, in the sense <laughs> that because when you look at Fortnite, one of the another interesting stat, the um, average monthly Fortnite gross revenue between January 19 and July 2020 um, uh like PlayStation led that by a long way, um, $148 million per week uh, or per month. A gross revenue uh, came through the PlayStation, followed by the Xbox at um, $82 million, Switch, half of that at $40 million. PC, all the way back at $27 million. You know, so Epic, while being this behemoth, are still very much uh, have to play by... Um, the big platform holders' rules, you know, Nintendo, uh, Microsoft, and you know, and particularly Sony. So I don't know, like you know, uh, but that's what they're trying to change with this lawsuit. This is why they're sure. suing Apple, and this will set precedent that will affect what Sony are allowed to do with their store, and so on and so on. And so, I mean, they. Like you described Epic as being, you know, essentially at risk of becoming a monopoly, and certainly they are in the development of games. Um, but they are tackling these companies, which are definitely already monopolies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Including Steam, which is like the monopoly that gamers seem to love and think of as their best mate, you know, run by friendly Uncle Gabe. But it has enormous power. Uh, and it wields that power in lots of different ways. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And yeah, just a, as a sort of like a, an offshoot of that, um, of course. Uh, so um, uh, David Rosen, who is the founder of uh, uh, Wallfire Games, um, who made Overgrowth, um, has just actually put a lawsuit on Valve about um, about. Uh, uh, and it's an antitrust lawsuit um, in relation to the fact that he is unable to sell his games, uh, Warfire's games, on any other um, storefront lower price than on Steam, which, you know, which is, you know, well, we'll find out whether that it, it's illegal or not. Um, but it's, there's a sort of, it feels like a big steamroller of 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 uprising against these big platform against big platform <laughs> yeah I, I mean i think we talked about that last week um but like david rosen's other thing is that he's also the co-founder of humble right um which is a you know digital storefront that sells predominantly steam keys <laughs> and so you know he's got various different stakes in the game it feels like yeah Hum, uh, Humble actually, I mean this is another offshoot of an offshoot, but Humble I don't know if you saw, but they announced a couple of weeks ago that they were going to get rid of the sliders on Humble bundles that let you define what amount of money you sent to the publisher versus uh, the developer versus the charity yeah. and replace the sliders with two buttons that would let you just donate either 5 or 15% to charity with like uh, two fixed rates basically um, and you had to give at least some money to Humble and the line share to the publisher um, they've just gone back on that though like we talked about that last week so I wanted to mention the fact that they've gone back they've apologized they said they're going to bring the sliders back um, maybe not in this exact same form as before but they are currently back on the site that's good 
But yeah, it feels like it's all change. And there's loads of other stuff that's come out of this Apple versus Epic case, and a lot of it is just funny because there's just an oddity to it. First, like from the judge that obviously is not overly familiar with the video games industry and is somewhat baffled and exhausted by it all after only five days of what's a three-week case, but also stuff like they've had to define a lot of the terms that they're discussing including stuff like what is a console and so there's been like these surreal moments during the case over the past week where you've got tim sweeney who runs a video game company being asked if he can point out a playstation (laughs) Um, (laughs) and then yesterday's thing was them being both apple and epic being asked to define what a video game was because essentially like it it matters as to the outcome of the case you know part of we didn't we didn't actually say what the case was about part of it is that Fortnite, um they want to be able to sell like subscriptions and advertise their own service uh within apple's store without apple either stopping them from doing that advertising or taking a cut of every subscription and so they've been pointing at roblox which is a game that's sold on there where Apple don't take a cut of everything that happens within Roblox. And so Apple have been making the argument that Roblox is a game, but the games you play within Roblox are not games. <laughs> mm. And <laughs> I mean, that would be true for quite a lot of Roblox games, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but they, they were getting down to the point of like, you know, there was a person from Apple who was... I think I think they were from Apple, but they were trying to define a video game and saying that a game is something that has a, a beginning, an end, and challenge. Those were the three points that apparently <laughs> defined a video game. No. Uh, which, yeah, no... <laughs> No, not a great, not a great description. I think our listeners are going to challenge us to do this now, um, which is <laughs> the point where we kick the can down the road uh, and talk about uh, any other news that's been happening. Some more positive news. Well, actually, I'm, the news just because isn't really positive or negative, which is quite funny and interesting. Uh, but the IGF nominations have just been announced, and yeah, we've been looking over them. There's some good games in there, and some games that Marsh doesn't like. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so like the Seamus McNally Grand Prize, which is the big one, the nominees are Paradise Killer, Teardown, Chicory, A Colourful Tale, Genesis Noir, the game that I guess Marsh doesn't like, Umarangi Generation, and Spiritfarer. Uh, do you agree with that? Those the those the six best indie, independent games released over the last 12 months? Teardown's uh, good. Yeah, Teardown's good. I like Paradise Killer as well. I'm not sure it's like terribly uh i mean it shows my many grand prizes there's supposed to be some innovation to it isn't there or is it just sort of i'm just trying to figure out how it's defined really like what it's supposed to celebrate it's kind of just like the overall best i think is the grand prize so yeah, like, right no, no, because there's still the nuovo yeah there's the nuovo award which is specifically for like innovative or weird things but the grand prize is just uh, i mean i guess this is a, a, a debate that's probably eternal but it feels to me like it's just hey this is great. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's nice. Um, the thing I always like about the IGF is that it does tend to put like quite different games together in the grand prize category. So seeing Paradise Killer next to Teardown, <laughs> it's like there's completely mm. different games, completely different objectives, uh, totally different experiences. And how do you say that one is better than the other, which is the classic uh, problem. I, I think Teardown is probably better, <laughs> personally. <laughs> but then it's just going to come down to, you know, 
you know some people who really love a, a good murder mystery and uh, a good kind of adventure game spirit set in an unusual world might like Paradise Killer better. I, I'm I, I'm enjoying. I would enjoy seeing the discussion about that one because that one's definitely about you know it's going to come down to what you value, and I think that's mm. always interesting. You know, you have a set of people, and and those that's a real good test of. Hey, what do you want games to be? Do you want them to be open ended fun boxes, but which don't want to say anything about the world or and and have lots of rough edges, but often the fun exists on those rough edges, or do you want something that is brash and sort of uh, mechanically kind of wanting to do exciting things and to present characters and storytelling, blah, 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 you know, all the stuff that Paradise Killer does. Um, and I'd, I'd like to see that. I would like to experience that argument. Yeah, I'd like to um, celebrate the IGF description of Spirit Thera, which is the most indie game, indie game description of an indie game you could ever hope to indie game. Uh, the first sentence is, Spirit Thera is a cozy management game about dying. <laughs> uh, and I believe it's very good, though. I've, it's I've supposed to be quite, yeah. I really it. close to playing it a lot of times, but I just haven't got around to it. That's kind of the best thing about awards for me, actually, is that it's sort of nudging me and say, "Hey, loads of people think this is great, yeah. and you forgot about it completely." So off you go, have a you know, play through this list and get all these experiences. They're going to be good in some way, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, I think that's yeah, I agree with that. I think that's the key value of of the IGF now. Like there are so many games and yeah. something that just kind of like points a laser focus on a set number of them and says these ones, these ones are worth like paying attention to. Um, but I like I think the grand prize is a good selection of things like mm. Umerangi Generation and Spirit Pharaoh are both good, great games as well. And like there's nothing, there's nothing that came out over the past year that I'm like, oh, I can't believe that didn't mm. get a nomination. Yeah. But you know the process behind the IGF is is pretty solid, I would say. Um, can we talk about it? Because you and I have been involved at the kind of the early stage. You know, can we talk yeah, about I, it? I don't think it's secret. I don't it's think not we're secret. Sworn to secrecy. So, so um, about I think three hundred people <coughs> are invited to be in the first round of um, of the process, which which is essentially a big Hoover operation where all of the games that have been entered um, into the awards uh, are given out firstly at random, spread out across all these 300 people. Um, once once you, as, a, as one of those people, has played, I think, sort of, what is it, six or ten of them or something, you can yeah. start picking any game that you like from that list and play them. There is a, an internal forum um, kind of message boardy forumy thing, where you can have discussions about individual games with the other judges, um, and some cool conversations on there. Actually, lots of people have um, interesting things to say. There's a little bit of ex- interesting to watch one-upmanship going on. There are some hmm. real blowhards who always like to put an opinion out. Uh, whether that needs to be aired or not, that's always fun. Uh, a lot of people who have problems <laughs> getting codes to work and things. But by and large, like the discussions for each game are really fun and interesting and you can sort of really get into them if you like. Um, um, and uh, you just, you can kind of browse it to sort of see what's around. It's a really kind of great source of, oh, heck, like I didn't realize this came out in the past you know year or whatever. Um, that's stage one. And from that list, um, 
you know, as a judge, what you're fundamentally doing is for each of the games that you're given, you're choosing whether you think it should be presented to the jury as one of the nominations. Um, uh, and uh, I think it is a pure voting. So if you vote for something to go in there, it's the the games that have the most votes go forward into the nomination phase. Is that is that right? Something like that, yeah. I don't know exactly how the the numbers behind it all work, but yeah, my understanding is that we're basically just making recommendations for what the jurors should pay attention to before okay. they before they select the specific nomination lists and and the ultimate uh, winners. And it's quite it's neatly done so that if you're um, you know, and I know that that you used to be able to uh, um, play anything you liked at the very start, like you could get access to any of the games. Um, uh, you know, even before you've made any recommendations of of games that you've been uh, actually sort of given as a list, um, now you have to do a number of, of um, votes uh, before you can do that. Which means that uh, you don't get the situation where the big hitter games get all the votes because that's what people are wanting to play because that's what they seeked out and they can didn't get around to playing the ones they'd actually been given and that's that's a good idea because you kind of get the most of both worlds which is you know you you want the important games to have eyes on them but you also need the to, to ensure that there aren't any forgotten gems you know that have been missed out i think it broadly works you know, yeah, that- I think that I think there are good examples of it working over the past few years. Like, like this year, obviously, you know, there's a lot of discussion around Spelunky Two, for example, because that's a, a big indie game that came out over the past year, and a lot of people have played it over the last twelve months, and so that will instantly have a bunch of conversation and people voting for it or proclaiming that they're not going to vote for it for whatever reason, and that's that's fine, that's valid, but you know, you if you look back over the last few years, there's always games in the IGF that get to the stage of being nominated despite the fact that most people haven't heard of them like they just get discovered almost through the process of the judges yeah. going through the igf like the most obvious one is outer wilds when that was like a student project mm-hmm. which i think ultimately won the grand prize like four or five years ago but at that point no one had heard of that game like it wasn't available anywhere really or like it was just a free download on their website or something but you know through the igf process it got elevated and more and more people commented on it so more and more people played it and everyone who played it loved it and so it kind of rose to the top in that good way and there's there's other examples like even in like just scan, scanning through the list for this year is like i think rainy season is a good example which isn't the best student game nominations, which is like made by a single person, takes you about 40 minutes to play it. It's been up on Steam, but it's not like a a big game that's had a load of attention or a load of press coverage or anything like that. But people in the IGF have still found it and championed it, and it's done well enough to get a nomination. Yeah. And it's a chance to get stuff like Blaze Ball in the Nuovo category, which is very fun. What? <laughs> I haven't looked at the list. I got to look. What really? Yep. <laughs> what? Blade? Oh, I. <laughs> you think it's something else? It's the horror. Baseball. I was thinking, oh. yeah, I, the ba- the baseball thing, which is really fun. I was going to. I did. I did notice that. And I was going to ask whether either of you played it. Uh, I thought you said it meant Blaz Blue, the the Japanese fighting <laughs> game. That would be amazing. <laughs> it would be amazing. <laughs> I voted for it ten thousand times. <laughs> it's not an indie game. It wasn't released this year. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so ha- have you have you done baseball? Have you uh, played I've, it? I've 
uh, I haven't played it. I've really enjoyed it sort of via other people's cryptic tweets about it. <laughs> and sort of like uh, other people who have written about it. Have, sort of, I don't kind of don't want to play it because it was ruining the mystery, but it sounds like a very bizarre mashup of things. It's kind of like a shared gambling sport with fake money, um, but also a sort of sports sim that's also mostly a horror game as well. I mean, what a combination of things. To... Very strange. Yeah, I've, I've been kind of, I've been obviously also really intrigued, but it looks like it needs quite a lot of time invested mm. in it, which I sort of, it's kind of frightened me off a little bit just to, to understand what's going on, but then to actually play it after that point. I was surprised it didn't get an excellence in narrative nomination because it seems like that's what right. people were really excited about by it last year was the kind of co-authored story that yeah. was between the developers and the community. Um but then I suppose at the same time, maybe that makes it difficult to nominate because it's such an, a non-traditional story and not one strictly created or shaped. Like it, it mostly exists in wikis written by fans and in tweets and in fan fiction and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then some of it gets incorporated via like in-game votes and stuff like that as they change the rules based on these stories that they're coming up with, which is like phenomenal and what's so exciting about it. But yeah. Yeah, can you do you credit the developers with that? You absolutely do, totally. So as well. Because yeah, yeah you, they, they've created an environment in which, um, which, which inspires that stuff, and it might be somewhat by accident, but you know they've clearly recognised uh, those, you know, the that propensity and encouraged it and built on it. Um, you know, that yeah. that seems totally down to the developers to me. Yeah. Which is why I'm surprised it's not nominated for mm. that. It gets an honourable mention for narrative. Well, that's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> that's the other thing that uh, award lists do. And they could go, that's bullshit, about three times. Two, one time, yes, two, we found list. it. <laughs> Good. What have you been playing, uh, Tom? I've been playing that Resident Evil Village, also known as Resident Evil 8, a direct sequel to Resident Evil 7. Uh, which had nothing to do with Resident Evil 6, <laughs> in case I was keeping count. Uh, this is like a first-person horror game. Uh, it's more of like a... It's got a much larger, more expensive world than 7, which was set in very claustrophobic houses and outhouses and small outside gardens and bits of, you know, cave systems and things like that. Um, this is, as is implied in the title, has an entire village to explore and get murdered in by... Uh, various gothic monsters. It's set in quote Europe unquote. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds uh, so like Resident Evil. This is Resident Evil Four. All of those things are Resident yes, Evil Four. That's very true. I was going to compare it unfavorably to Resident Evil Four, actually, in some ways. I um, I'll, I'm going to stay away from like story specifics or anything like that because it came out literally on Thursday this week, and you'll probably this podcast coming out on Saturday, so loads of people haven't played it yet. Um, but it finds itself stranded in between a few different kind of archetypal Resident Evil games. So 7 was brilliant, a brilliant horror game. Like, it's genuinely really scary. The It's set in Louisiana. It's kind of Texas Chainsaw Massacre vibe to it. There's this warped family stalking the corridors of this incredibly confusing, claustrophobic labyrinth of uh, rotting corridors. Um, and it just gets more and more intense and more and more horrible as you go through it. Uh, combat is desperate. You, you hardly have any ammo, um, and one enemy is a, a huge deal, and you do anything to avoid them or, or get around them somehow rather than actually face them. Um, but the Resident Evil series can, can be that. 
it can also be an action game, like Resident Evil 4, which is a huge shift for the series and widely celebrated as being one of the, just the greatest game of its generation. Uh, Over-the-shoulder camera, third-person shooter, and the very first village you go into in deepest, darkest Europe um, is immediately swarmed by loads and loads of enemies who are very difficult to... Yes, it, the combat in that game is very desperate. You're shooting at their legs to, so that they go down so that you can back away, reload, and then desperately fill them with a, a few more rounds by the the head. Um, bits coming off people, huge, enormous men with chainsaws running after you and cleaving you in half, one hit. Uh, it's it's terrifying stuff. And there's a, a fantastic kind of roaming battle through a small town at the very start of Resident Evil 4. And it just sort of escalates from there, really, including giant crocodiles, giant monsters is another Resident Evil thing. Um, and Resident Evil 8 kind of leans into that direction for the series uh, in that it's uh, more of an open environment. The environments are full of enemies, but the combat is inexplicably rubbish. And what, the reason this is so surprising is because it's good in Resident Evil 7. It's really well <laughs> balanced. Uh, enemies react realistically to your bullets, which feel very powerful when you, when you shoot them. Uh, Resident Evil 4, uh, which spawned 5 and 6, had similar localized damage systems where you shoot out their legs and different enemies respond in different surprising ways like you might shoot one type of enemies head off and it will explode in a series of writhing tentacles and then charge you uh not to that point you've been headshotting things quite you know traditionally and then the game will suddenly surprise you and it's really well paced in the way that it introduces these new surprises and keeps you on your toes um resident evil 8 the guns feel absolutely useless You're, the enemies barely react at all to be shot <laughs> you can kill them with headshots and then their heads will explode but you know you can't shoot their legs out or anything like that the guns sound crap and um, and there's no kind of sense of recoil or, or, or power to them at all um and it's just a really huge and surprising failure of the game because even the remake of resident evil 2 has brilliant guns <laughs> that are, and actually dealing with enemies in resident evil 2 is is a really interesting challenge because they're persistent you shoot the legs off one zombie in a corridor and come back to that same corridor half an hour later, uh, all the enemies will be exist in the state that you left them. So they'll still be crawling around with their hands <laughs> if, if you've cut them in half, for example. And it's, they're really difficult to kill and ammo is really scarce. Again, that kind of uh, pros and cons of ammo management, uh, resource management. Um, but crafting stuff in this game is trivial. Finding You find ammo everywhere in just random jars. Uh, <laughs> it, it massively stretches... Uh, what uh, the degree to which mixing a herb with a chemical can heal things <laughs> that happen to you, and I, I won't give specifics, but it gets ridiculous very quickly. In fact, the entire game gets ridiculous very quickly. Um, which Resident Evil Four does as well, because Resident Evil can be very kind of schlocky gothic horror if it wants to be, and have ridiculous villains uh, and ridiculous bosses, but. It's so incongruous to a game that is a direct sequel to Resident Evil 7, which is a totally different type of game, <laughs> as far as I can tell, like, in terms of the way, it was, the way it's balanced, the way it makes, wants to make you feel, um, the way it's structured. Uh, and I, I just find it, I find it baffling. I don't know what to make of it. And it's also just got some sections, some absolutely bullshit sections in it. Like quite early on, you're, you're being chased down uh, a cave through a cave system, then you fall into a room and... Uh, the ceiling is spikes and the spikes are coming down and you have to find a way out of the room in 30 seconds. And uh, what that means is just running around the edge until you see uh, a press X button prompt, at which point you 
rip out some wood that looks exactly like the wood in the rest of the room and then you escape to the next room there are more spikes and if you fail you have to go right back to the start of it and you keep edging your way forwards in this trial and error ridiculous kind of gauntlet until you've eventually done it and it's not scary it's not tense it's extremely annoying and i can't believe it's in a game in 2021 i i, I can't believe that section doesn't just get just go to the cutting room floor like as soon as someone says hey what, what about if we have them to the player just slide down into a you know a series of spike trap rooms where there are no lights and they have to sort of guess at which way to go next and if they lose they go all the way back to the start isn't that scary no it's rubbish <laughs> it's <laughs> widely known that that sort of sequence is rubbish and it's been rubbish for like 15 years now <laughs> uh, and that's just to be dropped in in the place of you know as though it's supposed to excite you or supposed to be scary and there's no real sense of threat to the game at all like, even though incredibly violent things happen to you personally uh, and to people around you like there's no sense that the enemies are so kind of typical and played out that there there's no fear, sense of fear to them so look at resident evil 4 like all the villagers you fight in resident evil 4 at the very start they look like normal people uh admittedly they're sort of groaning and they're, they're sort of seems to be out of their minds but they seem completely normal. It's not until tentacles start exploding out of them at random that uh, you, you kind of get a sense that there's something really supernatural about them. Yeah. And that and that's actually an unusual enemy archetype and something that's actually a good sense of body horror to it and the way it reveals it slowly over time uh, is, is really, really smart. And there's absolutely none of that. It's like, oh, you fight uh, werewolf dudes very, very, very quickly into the game. Um, and yeah, it just feels sort of like, like it should be a reveal. Yeah. Slightly hairier men as well, and what they, they very very slowly walk at you, or you shoot them in the chest over and over again, and they don't flinch, and then they fall over, go, Ugh, and then you loot them for coins, and there's, <laughs> I, I, it just does, it, the the secret sauce that has made that made Resi Four and Resi Seven brilliant is totally absent from this game, and I think it's stranded between the two games actually. So, what it so it doesn't really, yet. you don't feel it's trying to offering something new then? No, I don't, especially the way it just leans on very very typical, like oh, you know. What would you expect to see in a European Gothic setting? Oh, werewolves, vampires, creaky things. Yeah, no surprises there at all. There's a yeah, there's the a, a, a milky-eyed witch who walks around, humming, you know, talking nonsense about dark-winged angels and stuff like that. Uh, and it's just like <laughs> I've seen it all before. <laughs> it's it's like it's like a theme park. It's like you know, like a theme park ride that feels like it has to tick a load of boxes. Um. And with the exception of stuff like, you know, Lady Dumes crew, I think her name is. Uh, she's the super tall woman who which, who fascinated the internet for some reason, weirdly. It's uh, continuing actually, to, apparently. It's, it's, she's a, like an interesting character, actually. Like, she's the most unusual character in it so far. And actually, uh, one of the few characters that sort of bucks the trend of the typical monsters you'd expect to find in such a setting. Um, but that's the one standout thing. And I, I think um, there's some interesting stuff to be written about why that particular characters captivated people so much i i don't quite understand it but hmm. anyway <laughs> um yeah so sorry I just it's because she's about. it's because she's very tall Tom. I, she's very tall but then everyone in bloodborne is very tall <laughs> and, and no one's written love letters to the really really tall werewolves of bloodborne <laughs> are they big ladies yeah um yeah, i think that the lady aspect is is going to be uh, important definitely aspect. yeah for sure um uh, she's the only tall lady i've seen so far She's very tall, though. Very menacing. Um, so, yeah, uh, maybe it gets better. I've only played, like, the first two and a half, three hours. Um, 
I've, I've heard that it gets more and more strange as it goes on. Yeah, most of the reviews say it gets worse. Most of the reviews. Say oh the first, no! <laughs> yeah. Most of the most of the reviews say the first half's uh, really good and the second half is nuts. And so, like, you're bucking bucking the consensus by disliking it right from the off. Although yeah. um, I might love the second half. <laughs> that's not me. That's not me disagreeing because I played forty five minutes of it and gave up for all of the reasons that you just pointed out from having played the first three hours. Like, I got to that first village. And there were four faintly wolfy men kind of like coming after me. Uh, and I, I like I think horror games are really difficult to make because mm. video games ultimately want you to progress. They want they want you to finish them and see the all the stuff that they've made. But they have to convince you that you're in this really scary, dangerous situation. And like it was early enough in the game with these wolf guys. I'm like I don't know if I should be running away from them i don't Mm. know if i should be trying to kill them i don't have very much ammo so i feel bad with every bullet i'm firing like i'm anxious about the fact that i'm i don't like i am i going to find any more ammo if i use all my ammo am i going to be out of ammo for the next hour that's just an unpleasant experience Mm. shooting them feels bad because like you say they don't really react and even shooting them in the head seems to take at least like three or four shots for them to go down and it's like six or seven or eight if you're shooting them in the body uh and then like pretty quickly like i didn't know where to go i was being followed by four wolfmen but if i just kind of lightly jogged in front of them they couldn't ever catch up with me (laughs) if i stopped to try and fight them it was really awkward and felt bad i think they can do like two or three attacks of like Mm -hmm. biting at your neck before you die uh, and once I died the first time, any remaining threat that I felt was gone completely. <laughs> and so I like, oh man, this, this entire fantasy and tension and horror of this experience is gone. It's fallen apart. It just looks really ropey and it feels bad. And I feel anxious playing it, like anxious rather than afraid. Like I'm okay with horror games making me feel afraid. That's what I want. But this just kind of... Oh, I feel like I'm th- like like I'm throwing pound coins down a drain. That's how I feel when I'm throwing bullets <laughs> of legs. I just kind of drain. Oh, I, I probably should keep these. Uh, and so after forty five minutes, I just stopped. I just and I probably won't go back to it now. No, I wouldn't recommend it because it's. I mean, uh, ammo. It turns out it isn't scarce, and it's easily crafted and easily found. Some of you smash enough pots, um, and which just I mean. That anxiety you feel, I mean, that goes away almost immediately <laughs> yeah. after the first section. Uh, and also, as you say about the regular attack patterns, uh, it means that I handle 90% of the enemies with the knife now because I know when to go in and hit them twice and back off and hold L1, which is the block button, which mm. repels most of their attacks. Um, so it's just like wading through mud. And <laughs> mm. yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just lacking any sort of sense of threat or danger. Um, it's so yeah. interesting how many things you know. There, there are so many echoes of 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 uh, Resi Four in that description, or those both mm-hmm. of those descriptions, in the sense that its enemies in the village, you know, the start, those villages are slow as well. You can run away from them at a jog if you want to. Um, the ammo is scarce, um, but that was a that was a stunning sequence. Just yeah. the most. Uh, frantic, uh, surprising, um, 
creative like you you just you could handle it in so many different ways or at least it feels that way and i think it really is true as well there are so many places you can go that you can you know do i try and hold up in a uh, you know in a in one in the upper room of a house or do i just run and, and try to fight there's so many options um but i think that it's born with like the the number of different attacks that the enemies those villagers make you know they might be meleeing you they might run at you they may throw stuff or fire things from a distance they might come by and you think you're all right but then a tentacle bursts from their head and then suddenly they've got this incredible range and very very powerful attack at that you know that is a is a fantastically dynamic setting with all these different sort of like a main street which is really open there are these side areas you know with these alleyways going between the buildings you can go inside all the buildings in some of the buildings there are there's a shotgun in one of them upstairs. If if you go upstairs, they'll they'll go over the rooftops at you. They'll come up the stairs. They'll smash <coughs> through the windows. Like there isn't. It's not that dynamic in in uh, in seven or in eight. Then no, no, it's it's nowhere, nowhere, nowhere close. And I think like the fact that that experience has existed in the series and it feels if you were to write them. Both those opening sections down on paper, they would sound similar. But for, uh, like that combat was good enough to support an, an entire s- survival mode that was actually really good, where you get to yeah. play loads of different characters. As you say, the variety of enemies and how varied the AI was made it possible to have waves of different types of things coming at you in different combinations. And in like in Resident Evil 4, they flank you. And they yeah. don't, like, they don't flank you by sort of vanishing around a corner and then spawning somewhere to the side of you just three of them in front of you two of them will just move slowly to either side of you there's so much to be written about like the carefully tuned turning circle your character has while aiming while not aiming and how it's like the movement in resi 4 is slightly it's not clunky but it's there's, it's there's awkward slowness like you, to it it's you awkward, feel like, like a human it. yeah exactly yes yeah. yeah yeah so you're not slipping and sliding all over the place and bunny hopping it's like it's really you really feel like you're struggling and holding off the hordes all the time um and that oh that do they do so do they have like a um when you're aiming uh do they dodge your bullet or try to dodge your bullet slightly like like the villagers do in four uh, the, they they've got random dodge animations but they don't seem to be relevant I, i've not noticed them actually actively dodging out the way when i actually point a gun at their heads ah uh, see that's that's the, one of these like that's a good chilling one. things in four so oh, oh. it knows <laughs> yeah <laughs> it knows it's in a game uh, uh, yeah, the, the games are incomparable. Uh, but the thing is, the game like Seven never invites that comparison because it's such a dedicated horror. Horror. It looks like something like Outlast, but Outlast is actually very prescriptive with its scares. Whereas I think Resident Evil Seven and the remake of Resident Evil Two are, are much more systemic in terms of the actual, in terms of the different ways that combat can turn out and how you choose to when you choose to run and when you choose to fight. Um, they, those decisions feel much more impactful, and you're just um. As Graham says, like you can take loads of hits. Um, and you take ridiculous injuries that you just brush off. Like you're just the game tells you loud and clear in the first hour that your character could just sort of put chemical water on himself and be fine in almost any circumstance. <laughs> and was, at that point, someone like, what? Yeah, that was the other place where the 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 whole experience fell apart for me. Like I no longer believed in it because of the characters' reactions to things, both in cutscenes and out cutscenes. Mm. I don't think it's just like. I don't think it's a spoiler or anything to say that he has a part of his hand bitten off yes. in a scripted moment in like the first half hour and he gets up and he just kind of goes, oh, what the? And then that's it. 
And, like, <laughs> yeah. and then that's it. He just gets on with it. And you're just like, what? <laughs> what? I'm sitting here going, what the hell? Like, what? That's your reaction? You've got you've got two fewer fingers on your hand than you had a moment ago. Uh, what? <laughs> like, his, his reactions are so, so weird um, throughout. And the, the script, is, like the writing is terrible. Um, uh, it's a bit, uh, uh, you know, meet villager who meets a, a bad end and um he just he screams down at them and he, he screams why does everyone keep dying on me <laughs> it's like what who are you talking to like what <laughs> you're in a, a village full of monsters <laughs> you're who are you were killing the person you just met yeah who you're killing uh and um this, i'll explain in the break because i don't want to spoil it for people who are actually going to play this but even more ridiculous things happen to you that you just solve with magic herb water <laughs> It's ridiculous. I'm gonna. I'm kind of curious to see. I'll play it a little bit more because the environment's quite nice. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, yeah, the bits where I've, uh, I'm just not fighting anything and I'm just picking up, you know, uh, classic Resident Evil thing, picking up red keys for red locks, um, and exploring a, a, a opulent castle. That's quite nice. Um, but there's no, there's no way I'm going to get my money out of it. <laughs> that's for sure. So yeah, I mean, yeah, I feel like a. Also, if it does get ridiculous in the second half, I might enjoy that more. So I'm going to stick it out and see what happens. Alex, what have you been playing? I've been playing um, another Japanese very long-running series, the latest um, uh, game in. That, that sentence was all the wrong way around. My words are very scrambled egg tonight. God, I, don't, I can't speak tonight. Um, I'm playing, I've been playing uh, R-Type Final 2, which is a very scrambled egg um, title, as it goes. Um, this is the latest... Uh, and a game that nobody thought would ever exist um, in the very long-running R-Type um, series, um, which was kicked off by a company called IRM back in the late 80s. Um, shooter, scrolling shooter from left to right. Um, uh, and this is kind of... It was it's developed by a company called Granzella, which is where some employees from Irem uh, uh, left to found um, at some point in the last decade or so, I think. Um, and uh, they took it to they wanted to make you know the last um, R type game. They took it to crowdfunding, which uh, it succeeded uh, well, uh, and then made it. The thing is that, that as you'd expect, that the game that came before this, directly before this, which came out on PS2, I don't know actually when during the, the noughties, I guess. Um, that was called R-Type Final. And it was called that because it was meant to be the final game. Uh, so this is... <laughs> so I think actually with a tongue-in-cheek, this is called Final 2. Um, I don't know where you can take the series after this one. Um, uh, uh, but, you know, it's it's a faithful R-Type game. And that's a cool thing because R-Type is, is, is like... Have you have either of you played R Type? No. Yes, I played the. Um, I was going to say I played the original R Type, but maybe it wasn't actually. But I played R Type on the Amiga five hundred right. in the early nineties. Yeah, yeah. So that would been that would have been a port of R Type. Um, I'm. I, I should. I should clarify that I am bad at this game, and I've been bad at all of the R Type <laughs> games, and I haven't played Far Type uh, Final. Um, or any of the, I've only ever played the, the kind of the older, the older ones. Anything in 3D. This is my first 3D version. Um, they're all fundamentally the same game, though. Um, 
uh, and I'm terrible at them. But this series um, uh, is its its cool thing is that it is fundamentally like a puzzle solving game, or at least it's very deliberate. Like you move quite slowly in this. It scrolls quite slowly. There aren't that number of bullets on screen at any one point. Um, uh, but everything is a bit of a challenge, like is a challenge to take down in general. And uh, you have to think your way through stuff in the way that it's positioned and, and what your ship's capabilities are. Um, so you're like, so you, you know, you're this funny little bug shaped little ship, um, very cool looking ship actually. Um, uh, and you are going against the Birdo empire, which is sort of like the, the, the famous thing about the first one is that sort of you're, you're in this kind of very mechanical ship and the, the levels you go through become increasingly organic as time goes on um the enemies you're up against are kind of like these weird kind of deformed creatures and sort of sort of i don't know organic shapes which was very cool for the time because because like old graphics couldn't really do that kind of thing that well it looked amazing um and but that that's the thing about this one um when it went to 3d it was kind of you know that was the first one was on the first 3d one was on um playstation and the low kind of the low resolution gave it a little bit of magic I think kind of it's sort of everything I don't know it just looked stunning for the time I didn't play it but I saw it in screenshots and things um our type final two uh is obviously on modern displays and uh, I must I think that modern resolutions are kind of pitiless to this kind of game it's made in unreal engine Everything is shiny in a not particularly nice way. Uh, the lights, sometimes the lights and explosions are really great, like the way that, that, that shadows are suddenly cast by explosions and and kind of these flared sort of bl- blasts going across the screen and things. They can look really good. And other times, because things are reflective for, for lights from light sources coming from a ship, for example, it can look really odd when something in the background is meant to be organic and it's just too shiny there's a it's a little all a little bit too clean and things and that really did put me off to start with because it looked like that it's all scrolls very very neatly and things and very smoothly and it's sort of it's wonderfully made but it's yeah it it it's not it it's it it's not doesn't have much of a magic to it however i've started playing and i'm i i warned you i'm really bad at it and i haven't really managed to progress past the second area which is really bad um and that's mostly for me is because it has a problem that I think a lot of, for me, with a lot of um, shooter games have, which is that, you know, over the course of a run or like a, of a life, you'll collect power-ups. And when you die, you lose all those power-ups. And R-Type is a game which is checkpointed and it will turn you to the nearest checkpoint, which is good because you don't have to go back to the start of the, the level. But it's bad because you don't have any of the power-ups you had. Um, and so suddenly you can be steamrolling a level um, and you know, have an incredibly, amazingly, cathartically powerful ship, and then die to a single bullet that you didn't notice, um, and then it's a slog, and you—it's very easy just not to be able to catch back up again. Now, like the designers have obviously borne that in mind, you will get power-ups soon after um, restarting at a checkpoint. But at my skill level you know the the jolt between a good run 
and then dying and then suddenly roadblock and I just can't get past an area is is difficult to bear and it's frustrating for me. I think, you know, obviously this is a story, like this has existed in our type and in the, and in lots of other shooters for decades. So it's clearly, it works for a lot of players and it works for the genre in many ways, I guess. But yeah, it's, it's a pain in the ass. Um, but when I am enjoying it, like the detail of this game is absurd. So I think, you know, so final one had, I think, 120 ships or something in it. Um, and I think that our type fight time of power two has a similar thing and the ships all look broadly the same, but they all are different experiments in the kinds of guns that you can get in a, uh, on a, in a shooter game. Um, so, so that you, so the, the, the default, the default and the starter ship is the one that you have all the way through the early um, R-Type, and it's called the um, R9A Arrowhead. And it has like a sort of a laser, little bloopy laser that comes out the front, and you can hold that down, and it will release a, a really powerful charge shot. And it has homing missiles that you can pick up um, if you get the right pickups. Um, you, the, the other thing about R-Type is that you get the, uh, um, the, the force, which is... Uh, a spherical um, uh, thing, little kind of shippy bit that flies, or you can that, that will come onto the screen, and you can pick it up by flying into it, and you'll latch onto either the back of your ship or the front of your ship, and that will now act as a shield if for bullets that hit you from that direction, and also fire out of it an additional um, weapon. It is that's that's a big that's one of the big stalwart type things. Um, and so you're thinking a lot about um, where that is on your ship. If it's at the front, it means you're defended from anything directly from the front. So you can you can actually literally um, ram stuff with it, despite your ship dying to anything touching it anywhere else on its actual thing. The force module will always was impervious. Um, that you can also pick up what are called bits, which is uh, a very a smaller spherical thing, which either um, floats at uh, at the top of your ship or the bottom of your ship, and that will absorb and do damage to stuff that it touches uh, from above or below, depending on where it is. And so you're you're thinking about where they are as well. And so you have a you have this extra protection when you have that stuff, then you know that you're generally protected on those sides, and it changes the way that you approach uh, the you know otherwise completely linear levels. Um, and then, but the the ships themselves, like the, the sort of the ship that I'm really enjoying, it's the one of the third ship that you get. You can get it really soon. is uh, is called the R9F Andromelias. <laughs> it has a shockwave cannon. That's so good. The shockwave cannon is like a um, a shotgun if you um, if you charge it up, and it's this. It creates this huge circular area in front in which it just blast. Like everything is just blasted. For some of the enemies that are that are particularly strong, you might need two hits, you know, two charge shot hits. But it means you're popping in and out of cover, kind of going in close, popping them and getting out. It's such a good ship. But there are all these other pickups and things, and each of the different ships has a different take on three uh, archetype uh, weapons. Um, there's the the red weapon. <laughs> there's probably proper terms for this stuff. But the red weapon that's like a a, a weapon that shoots forwards. There's the blue one, which shoots diagonally in some way. 
and there is the green one. I think it's the green one, and it shoots uh, uh, downward, uh, directly up and directly down. Um, uh, and the Andromelus uh, or Dromelius, uh, um has this incredible uh um has this amazing laser for the blue one which shoots diagonal uh where the laser shoots diagonally out from the top and then when it hits the ceiling of the area usually there's a ceiling you're sort of like you're going into areas so you've kind of always got a ceiling and a, and a floor once it hits the ceiling it bounces directly down so you're bouncing shots all the time uh that, and it's an expression of the of, of the blue weapon in other ships where it might be a, a going diagonally up and diagonally down, and then these things ref, these lasers then refract around the level all around you, and like it's there. I've, I've tried out a load of other ones. There's um there's one that I hated for for a while called the Shooting Star, the R nine D Shooting Star. Now hang on, no, it's R nine E Midnight Eye with the Recon W cannon, and that's kind of like the shotgun that's on the Andromelius, but it's, I don't get it. You get a, it, it puts up this big crosshairs on the screen and, but things have to be really close into it. It doesn't seem to do more damage. Don't understand that one. Um, and it has the camera bit, which I don't understand what that is in relation to the other bits. These, the bits of these little tiny, uh, uh, spheres, which hang up above and below the, the, the ship. Um, when you look at the the weapon load, uh, loadouts for all of these ships, it you, you can see they're all different, and you I, I want to find out what in what way they're different, what they can do, and and that's what's actually powering me through. I'm crap at it, but at the same time, I'm good enough to get through the first level without dying, and and means I can fully power up the ship and start to see how it expresses. The, the fundamentals of those three different archetypes and the idea of being protected from behind and below and, and above and things. But there's so much of the game I'll never see because I'm just not too good, not just not good enough. But um, it's just weird though, because I don't really know how it's particularly different to Final One, you know, which is an old game now. Maybe it's just, you know, I've read um, an interesting uh, a Twitter thread where someone translated uh, what one of the, the the lead, you know, the creative director of the game um, had said on a Japanese uh, website, I think, about how it's it was one of the big struggles behind the game is to to make a shooter like a shoot up shoot 'em up game like this relevant for console players for modern the modern environment, and it seems to exist in the ships which you're paying for by picking up, you know, you're as you go through runs you're generating resources which you can use to, to to buy these extra ships some of which are only locked unlocked when you get to certain levels um and that's kind of you know that that is a good hook like i want to find out what the 89th ship might how on earth they've ex- you know rinsed something new out of this system that the 89th ship will be different and worth playing with but i won't get there because <laughs> it's too hard for me but yeah it's it's interesting to see it, a game like this adapt, you know, so deep and rich uh, being released today. Sounds like a game I'd I'd almost play for, uh, play for a hundred hours, but might just be slightly too irritating <laughs> and trial and error in terms of ship builds to persist with, especially if there's like lots of resource gathering to be done before you can start unlocking them. Well, I mean, I, you know, I think that you can easily, I mean, I, I picked up the first, I don't know, six or seven, I think seven ships um, after 
maybe half an hour's play. Oh, okay. It gets. Yeah, I think it then slows down. I think that there is. I think if it's anything like final was, there is there is certain certain secret um, uh, conditions on which some of the ships will will um, unlock, which is you know part of the game. You know, sometimes you'll need to have succeeded at certain thing or put a certain amount of time into this particular level or something like that. Um, I think that I, I did. I haven't been felt frustrated in the fact that there's lots of stuff that I haven't been able to access yet it's simply that i'm too shit (laughs) (laughs) and usually like most of my deaths are crap i knew full well that there's an an enemy there and i just didn't wasn't looking there this time or yep i shouldn't have been sitting there at that point i know full well i should have been elsewhere or i should have shot that beforehand or i missed something you know it's you know it's kind of kick myself stuff but yeah i i do find the bounce back from a failure pretty hard. Hmm. Maybe you'll get on the switch and sort of play it in, in ad breaks. <laughs> yeah, you could do. Apparently the load times are pretty slow on switch. I would uh, warn you. Yeah. Okay. Mm, thanks for that warning. <laughs> I hate that. Graham, what have you been playing? Hmm. I've been playing two little things, so they shouldn't take long to chat about. But the first of, of them is uh, Catacombs of Solaris Revisited. Uh, are, are either of you familiar with this or with, indeed, the original Catacombs of Solaris? I don't think I, I am. I've n- never visited them, nor revisited them. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, the original was like a little game released on Itch. I think it might have been free or pay what you want, anyway. Um, but the, the, the revisited is like a remaster of the same idea that came to Steam sometime over the last year. And what it is, is like, a, it's a first-person game set in a maze where the walls have like a repeating colored pattern on them uh, and you walk around the maze and every time you stop what you see on your screen is then applied to the walls around you as a texture <laughs> uh. <laughs> um, but also uh, but then the geometry changes at the same time so it's not just like applied to the walls around you as a texture. It's applied to the around applied to the walls around you relative to the position you're standing in at that moment. Mm. So you'll be walking down a corridor. Um, you turn and look at a wall, and pause for a second. And then, when you start moving again, what was previously a wall. And what still looked like a wall up until the moment when you started to move is no longer a wall. It's now a corridor because it has blurred the lines between the 2D and the 3D, essentially. Like it's, it's, and that, that's it. That's the entire game. Like the game is purely about that experience of messing with your sense of perspective, where when you stop and when you look and when you move, you can't tell initially whether you're looking at a 2D flat plane or a 2D image spread across like a Channel 4 ident from the 90s, <laughs> spread across the set of walls uh, to make it look like it's still like a 2D image. And then you move and realize, oh no, actually it's, it's 3D and the shape of it has changed. And like, like, like I say, that's it. The only other thing it's got, it's got going on is there is a set of filters that you can apply 
um, via the menu screen, like mutators, essentially, you think of them as like, like from Unreal Tournament back in the day, which uh, changed the way that the image on the walls warps. So like there's one that makes the colors in the pattern on the wall kind of bleed together as you move and turn, almost like watercolor. Uh, and then that therefore, therefore because you're you can stack these images so like let me describe this you uh you'll you'll look at the pattern it'll change the textures on the wall to that pattern and then you you'll turn and you'll move around and that pattern will be spread across and so you can pick a new spot and look again and then your image at that point <laughs> is applied to the walls but every time you do it you're changing the texture on the walls and so you can do this six, seven times in a row and radically change the wallpaper around you, essentially. So that when you then apply these mutators that cause like colors to run together or, or change what colors you're looking at or the type of pattern, or you can upload um, custom images. So you can stick your own photos up there and it'll, it'll make patterns out of that. <laughs> uh, you can, like, that becomes like the kind of mini game when I'm playing this. Like, otherwise it's like, it's, it's playing in quotation marks in its strongest sense. It's really, this is just like a toy to play with your sensor perspective. But like, it's the thing that I'm thinking about is, oh, can I, can I make a visually appealing uh, pattern? Or can I take this pattern, which has so many colors and looks like a visual migraine, and can I actually position my view six times and make it just be a, a single color that's across all the walls? Uh, and it's 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 really interesting thing to play with. It costs like a, a few quid from Steam, um, and I had like an hour's worth of of interesting fun messing around with it. So I recommend it. That sounds mind bending. What's it called again, Graham? <laughs> the Catacombs of Solaris Revisited. Is there? Any, uh, hmm. Sorry, go on. Yes, yeah, is, is there any sort of narrative underpinning? I don't know. Why I'm asking this. <laughs> Well, it's got, what's it's your got, motivation it's got it's got solaris in the in the title which is maybe, yeah you know, that's what evokes evokes something at least um no there's not really a narrative on um nothing that i found in game anyway um but there is an interesting article about the game um and what it's doing and the a community that's kind of growing up around it that we hmm. wrote on rock paper shotgun which we'll link in the, the show notes emily reed wrote it and there's basically there's People have been playing this at like uh, game meetups as like an art sport, hmm. um, where there'll be like a panel of judges that will appraise the the patterns or the artworks that people are making on the wall or within a set time limit, um, or or their set specific challenges and like a custom photo is used as the background and they have to like fulfill an objective faster than their opponent and that sort of stuff that's really cool like yeah people like interesting things are growing off the back of it even though it's such a a small thing and a a very niche thing um the other game that i've been playing so i like i said i played resident evil 8 for like 45 minutes and noped the fuck out of there because i was so frustrated and instead i booted up Turnip Boy Commits Tax Evasion. <laughs> uh, which is about as far away from Resident Evil Village as you can get, I feel like. Have either of you seen this or played this? I've seen I've seen I've seen and read a few things about it. I've not, and if I'd have seen that title, I would have definitely clicked on it. <laughs> and then probably bought it and downloaded it. It's a kind of uh, like 
cutesy, very indie, top-down Zelda-like, I say, in which you play as Turnip Boy. Um, <laughs> and you're in a, a world where everyone around you is is a vegetable or an animal. The animals <laughs> are the enemies. Um, uh, and you are, aren't paying your taxes, <laughs> basically. And the mayor of the town, Mayor Onion, I think he is, he's, he's upset about this. Uh, and Sin basically says that you have to be his assistant in order to, to make up for the fact that you're not paying your taxes and sends you off on, on various little tasks around the town to help him. And as you explore the town, you meet more people who need help and you do their objectives and that unlocks new areas that let you fulfill your larger objectives and so on. And so it's got this really simple structure to it. It's really um, pleasing and satisfying to just put it up and do favors for like six people in 10 minutes and tick off like this big to-do list and like the stuff you're doing will be like you'll meet a carrot in a field and the carrot's worried because he's been supposed to be babysitting a baby carrot and the baby carrot's gone missing and he's carrying a stool above his head uh, because he doesn't know how to sit in it properly um but he wants your help to find the baby carrot and so you'll you know you don't know how to do that but you assume that sooner or later you're going to stumble across a baby carrot. But as you're going around the world, you'll then find like a deck outside some housing, which uh, has like broken stairs and the character that's next to it will say, Oh, if only we had a stool, we could stand on to help ourselves get up there. And you go, Oh, I know where there's a stool. That carrot guy has it. I bet if I bring back his baby carrot that he's supposed to be babysitting and he's lost, he'll give me that stool. And it's, um, and the other thing is, like, you're committing tax evasion, but Mayor Onion is obviously evil. <laughs> that's the thing. Everything that you're doing in this game, you're helping him, but you're getting him stuff that makes it seem like he's going to turn himself into the final boss of the game. And he's, like, a horrible tyrant, uh, and he is just hoarding people's tax money rather than spending it. Um, Turnip, that's the other thing. Turnip Boy doesn't talk. All he does is, like, it's either ellipses, dot, 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 or it's question mark, question mark, question mark. That's the only two things he can ever say during dialogue. But everyone else is very chatty. And I think your mileage may vary as to whether or not you find it funny. I'm enjoying it. I think there are some good jokes in there as you're meeting these carrots and onions and all these different vegetables. Um, but it's very modern, indie, uh, like post-adventure time I don't know what, what, like, there's a certain tone. We've talked about it before. We have done it many times, from... yeah. We can't, so I think Marsh came up with a really good term for it, uh, but I can't remember what it was. Yeah. I, I want to know what that term is because I keep thinking about this. It's that super casual or to... lower cap thing. Yeah, it's sort of like that. Yeah, it's that. It's not all lower cap, but it's that sort of tone, basically. Mm. I mean,. I don't want to call it hipstery because that's what someone terrible would call it. That's why I feel like there's like a better term for it. Um, so I'll have to ask Marsh, but yeah, it's got that tone and I, I'm finding it pretty charming, pretty funny, but like I said, you might, it, I can see how it could also be grating at the same time. That was a good warning because I, I am, I'm getting more and more sensitive to it as I, <laughs> as, as I, as I succumb to older and older age. I'm terrible, but it's definitely my failing, but it's, um, yeah yeah it's this sort of mixture of like genuine earnestness but also intense irony mm. uh, like nothing is actually matters or uh everything is kind of a joke but it's got 
good feels and everyone's nice and um broad, broadly i like it it's like there's good thing good things within it's like very light-hearted approach to the to the systems of the world like for example every bit of paper you can read um when you open it up to read it the only option you have to put it down again is rip and so <laughs> and, and so you'll meet like a you'll meet like a potato that <laughs> wants you to take a, a flower to a strawberry because the, the potato really likes the strawberry and wants to go out on a date with her and so you, you know you'll take the flower over to the strawberry and the strawberry will be like oh sorry turnip boy i don't i don't really feel that way about you and you'll respond with dot 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 and and the strawberry will be oh, oh it's not from you the flower is not from you the flower is from potato oh thank god well in that case here's this like handwritten note to take back to potato so that you so that you know to asking him if he wants to go out on a date with me uh, and you take the bit of paper and you just rip it in half because that's the only thing you can do with any bit of paper that's given to you <laughs> <laughs> and so like you just take it and you just rip it in half and, and strawberries just like oh well, that seems a bit mean <laughs> and then that's it that's that little quest complete and you go on about your day uh, and there's lots of things like that of people people giving you rewards and your responses every time to just tear it up and that's what I mean where this is a game that's very earnest and sweet but also everything <laughs> is meaningless and it knows that it's meaningless yeah. and it's filled with not pop culture references, but like internet humor. Like there is a character that talks in like ubu sort of speech. Um, can you do it? Can you can you try it verbally? No. <laughs> <laughs> if the thing is quote W's and all the words that shouldn't have that shouldn't have W's in them. Um, oh, there's like a there's a character you meet who's a a video game streamer and then you'll meet a person who runs like a sandwich franchise and they really want the per- the, the streamer to eat a sandwich on the air like although they're all vegetables and the enemies that you're eating as you travel between areas are snails and the, it, the game explains that the snails are all vegetarians and that's why they'll attack you if you get too close to them and that's why it's okay that you're using a, a sword that you grew from taking your watering can and like Something on a sword flower or whatever. Yeah, that's why it's okay. You're killing all these these snails and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it's a very like very aware of the modern world, even though it's set in a very silly fantasy place. But yeah, I've I've played it for like an hour and a half. I think in that time, I kind of like cleaned out two of the areas in the game and so and like completed probably like fifteen to twenty little quests for people because each of them is so short. It's very poppy. It's very fun. It's very colorful. It's nice. It's a nice oh, little thing. It sounds really cute. And also, yeah, cute. Keep it with a deep sense of maybe sort of existential disinterest. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel alienated. Shall we do questions from questions? Yeah, let's yeah, do some not? questions. Uh, we've got just one this week. Um, it's from Ross Angus, who writes, Dear Iris Murdoch's The Sea, The Sea. That's just The Sea Letter, which is a good joke. Uh, years ago, I aborted a playthrough of Just Cause 2 during the tutorial when I realised that I would be required to murder perhaps thousands of mooks and the game had not sufficiently persuaded me that they was deserved this fate. <laughs> 
Can you please invent a term for this grim, wordless pact that some games are required to make with the player? And can you also think of similar games from your past that have elicited an unwanted empathic reaction? Ross, that's a good question, actually. Hmm. I can't, I can't come up with a name off the top of my head, but uh, the game that I thought of was Nino Kuni. Like, broadly, I'm okay with video games telling me I have to kill lots of human beings f- for vague reasons of evil. Like, fine, whatever. <laughs> um, but in Nino Kuni, they're all like cute little vegetable people. Like, if you don't know it, this is the JRPG where uh, the animation and the world and stuff were, were sort of built or designed or concepted, I'm not sure, by Studio Ghibli? Studio Ghibli? Uh, yeah. I've never known. Ghibli, I believe. Ghibli. Okay. Yeah. And so if you've seen any of their films, their films are beautiful, wonderful, soul-enriching experiences. And the game captures a bit of that. Like, it has a lot of heart really beautiful world really lovely animation it's really great to explore and then you just like like the equivalent of having fucking dog fights in the middle of it where you just like put put together this army of (laughs) of cute little spoon wielding vegetable people and then have them go into sewers (laughs) and fuck up other vegetable people And Don't you capture them? Do you capture them as well and get them yeah. to fight for you? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You put together this little army, and you you know you keep you you capture them, and then you can feed them ice cream or whatever to keep them happy, and give them little pets and strokes, and make them grow big and strong, and then make them murder murder their friends. <laughs> and it's just it's just not what I wanted from this game. I didn't I didn't like, and I, I get that it's like you know that's what Pokemon is. Pokemon is. It's, yeah, right. creatures that you make fight against each other and, and lots of rpgs especially jrpgs have some sort of you know, familiars that like you can recruit and follow you around but in this game especially i found it really jarring and i just didn't want to do it i didn't want to make these cute little people fight each other i just wanted to be friends and and hang out in the beautiful Ghibli universe I had this. Um, I had I had this continual. I, I didn't play very much of it, but while I did, I had the um, the, the sort of sense of um, Miyazaki, the the founder and <laughs> the main guy behind the the Ghibli films, um, kind of just just shaking his head. <laughs> yeah, what his company had been involved in producing, because he's been. I I can't remember any of the quotes and I can't actually, <laughs> but I'm under the impression that he was fairly withering about uh, the the the, the, uh, the violence and uh, the way that the, a lot of games just fundamentally just work on just hitting each other and kind of frowns on it in his own films. <laughs> I just like, oh, he must be so disappointed <laughs> his company's gone and done here. He's. I mean, there's the. He became an internet meme essentially because I think we've talked about this even just in the last few episodes. But the video where he gets showing an AI animation of a mm-hmm. of 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 a person walking, but the AI has animated it so it looks like kind of like shuffling undead. It's really grotesque. And there's this <laughs> there's this clip in uh, a documentary about Miyazaki and Ghibli where uh, two young tech guys excitedly show this to Miyazaki and they're they're really excited and they think they think this AI stuff is going to be the future of animation and Miyazaki just 
destroys them. And he's, the quote that everyone remembers is he says, he watches the video and he says, I strongly feel that this is an insult to life itself. <laughs> uh, and yeah, you can imagine him watching his cute little vegetable people fight each other brutally in a sewer while the 10 year old boy that you're that is the protagonist of the game kind of like cheers on the sidelines for them uh, uh i can you can imagine him having that kind of reaction and miyazaki's always been like that as well like uh, there's two two good books i think they're called turning points volume one and two which collect a bunch of miyazaki's writing over the years uh, and translate it into English. And it's a bunch of stuff that's never been translated into English before because he's written articles huh. um, for like Japanese magazines and comics and stuff like that about anime and manga and these sorts of things. And I, so I, I got volume one of Turning Points and it's basically just, it's, it's articles that he wrote in the 80s and 90s and stuff like that when he was like 30 and 40 years old, but he still has that withering old man energy that he has now <laughs> where he just, you know, like writes an article about mecha anime where he's just completely disparaging and about it and <laughs> says that he thinks it's all trash. Nice. It's really good. It's really good. That's interesting. It's really interesting. <laughs> I was trying to think about violence in this film, actually, because um, Ghibli films do occasionally have violence, but... Uh, now I think about it, it's always everyone's sort of shocked and horrified by it, and it's always commented on. There's um, a bit where someone gets decapitated by an arrow shot in Princess Mononoke, and uh, his allies around him just recall in horror at <laughs> seeing it. It's like, oh yeah, that's the difference between this film and what most films yeah, actually exactly. do. With this type of scene. Uh, yeah, he's actually, not. He's not like yeah. The, the pure blood Ghibli stuff is not unafraid to show violence it's, or like he isn't squeamish about violence it's That's just right. like violence is bad <laughs> it's good. yeah it contextualizes it much, much more care than uh, a lot of a lot of films do but there's also That's yeah it. like most of the villains in Ghibli's films are like manifestations of the protagonist's own flaws as a person and so even where there's mm. violence like the ultimate resolution most of the time of any conflict is the person except like not accepting their flaws but like learning to deal with their flaws and move past them like you know and so like villains and in um spirited away or or um how's moving castle whatever that by the end aren't villains anymore they are mm, understood yeah. and transformed as, as the protagonist is but no make the little vegetable people fuck each other up <laughs> <laughs> nothing must be learned <laughs> I think that, that kind of uh, that, uh, under the surface moral crisis of Pokemon type games uh, it, it exists across multiple genres so we've played lots of Persona 5 recently uh, the Persona series is great it comes from Shin Megami Tensai and essentially uh, it involves teenage protagonists going into what like, Persona calls the metaverse which is a kind of subconscious universe built by the subconscious of the people who have kind of created it These are populated by shadows which are demons um, but uh, the demons have a lot more kind of autonomy and personality and implied lives than the game ever needs to give them. Uh, and in Persona 4, which is on PC, is actually a port of uh, it's Persona 4 Golden. It's, it developed from the PSP version, I think, uh, which used to be a handheld game. Uh, Persona 5 probably isn't going to come to PC, but Shimmer by Tensai 3 remaster is coming to PC this month, uh, mm. the month of May, late May. So it's worth, if you're interested in this sort of angle on the pokemon genre uh i a kind of quite darkly grim but also with a kind of sense of 
dark sense of humor to it as well, um, then it's definitely worth checking that out. Uh, so the thing about these demons is that you fight them, but, and when you get them in a down state, in Persona 5, you can run up and hold them up at gunpoint, and then you can initiate a conversation with them. And if you gel with them and you give them the right answers and sort of match your personality with theirs and kind of find some common ground, then you absorb them into your mask and you can use them, you can fight with them, like Pokemon. Uh, but in order to get more powerful Persona, uh, you quote-unquote fuse them with other Persona. In Persona 4, this was represented by, they're represented by playing cards which glow a bit and then turn into a different playing card. And you think, oh, it's just tokens, it's fine. Persona 5 takes a very, very different approach to this, um, where there's an extended cutscene whenever you fuse together two different shadows, different demons, um, in which they are led to separate guillotines and then their heads are chopped off and they merge into one being. Uh, <laughs> you can also itemize them. Uh, which involves uh, covering them in a sheet and electrocuting them in an electric chair. Um, there's also, you can do triple executions to you know, uh, create a, one even more powerful persona. There's uh, a, type, a thing you could do to them that involves hanging them. <laughs> and it's, it, it embodies these creatures that you're fighting with and that you've actually persuaded on the battlefield to join you. It embodies them and then destroys those bodies and warps them, physically fuses them together in a way that is much more challenging i would say <laughs> than other games that play with this sort of pokemon genre of like oh it's just a game about card collecting or oh you fill up your pokedex uh, and then this actually no um i mean you might you could do a, a, an essay on you know is it, it, charizard what happens to charmeleon when it turns to charizard <laughs> is it, it, it it's implied that it's a totally different person <laughs> so have you have you killed the other personality that was charmeleon and persona 5 is basically all got that all over like it, it's constantly sort of nudging you one of the characters in your party is uh, a cat that talks and it's certain it used to be human and has been cursed to be uh, in a living cat form but also it might actually just be one of these demons that's escaped uh the shadow realm and just joined humans as a cat very good <laughs> it's interesting the, the the cool thing about it, it's funny to say because i actually went back to it after having not played it for about two years just last night and um i'm just trying to re- relearn all the kind of what yeah. things mean <laughs> like oh yeah what is the metaphor for just making new 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 things to creature fight with oh yeah guillotine okay yeah, um but it does set up like I, I it's really interesting that it kind of so i was just wondering about what what the name is of the pact it is like the blood pact isn't it where yeah. you're you feel better about um executing the demons because usually they've been arseholes to you during the battle when you've been trying to recruit them and they're really nasty they're just like insulting yeah. and sassy and generally kind of really dismissive of you as you of you so you've you know the, the little mini game being that you've kind of got to figure out the best way to, to to get them to be impressed enough to join you um so you've kind of you already have a relationship with them of a sort, which um, which is quite a neat thing. That's the the blood pact that it puts you into. I was just thinking as well about um, you know, like um, uh, I th- th- maybe think about. Do you remember that game Kenshi? Hmm. Oh, that yeah. sort of uh, very open ended RPG sort of game in which you're in this sort of very complex sort of world of different factions and it's brutal brutal game where you can die very easily of many different afflictions and and enemies and it's kind of janky as well and and but it's really very interesting and sort of bizarrely detailed in the way that it renders violence and things but in that one like because all these different factions um 
you're always fighting against character, other other humans or and kind of um, fantasy creatures as well, I guess. But you're um, you always have like beef. <laughs> Is like because you know because they've been nasty to you in the past, and like the blood pact is formed by this sort of um, systemic uh, in a systemic way, where all through this run that you've been on with your character, you've been assailed by people more more you know you've been punching down at you all the way through, and when you get into any fight, you really have a lot to prove. Like but you know you need to survive for one thing. But also, screw those motherfuckers, you know. <laughs> and that's how, like, that's fundamentally what games, kind of violent, violence-based games, have to do. They have to kind of generate a screw those motherfuckers kind of sense in you. And like Kenshi's is, yeah, like actually every faction you could completely ally with any of the factions, but you generally hate all the ones that are against you. Can you think of a, a name for the? The ludonarrative deadenance that he's <laughs> talking about. It's just the blood pact. I wonder how much they need, like a game needs to say to you to invite that response. I think yeah. we're, we're quite well trained by games just to accept enemies as enemies and not really think too much about <laughs> your motivation. Uh, well, some... then you get The Last of Us or something like that, where yeah, yeah. you get lectures. where it's sort yeah. of, it, but and obviously it's that's partly what the game is about, and so on and so on and so on. Yeah, and, of course. You know, and not, it makes it hard to play a lot and questionable after you finished and things. But um, but I think that yeah, like there's got to be a lot of show don't tell or like do don't be told. I suppose is the game equivalent of that, where you have to create your own um, relationship with the enemies for that to be effective uh, because for as long as you're just told that the others are, are, are baddies that only goes so far especially as games try to be a bit more complex yeah I think the Spec Ops line invited lots of op-eds because it's a game that appeared from the outside to be a, a totally conventional genre piece that did actually try to complicate the uh, relationship between you and the people that you were doing war crimes on but also wanted you to shoot them. <laughs> yeah, and also the shooting was really fun. <laughs> Made really good shooting. Ah, video games. <laughs> Miyazaki, can we ever persuade him? <laughs> Is there anything anyone could say to Miyazaki that would uh, encourage him to just play a bit of Animal Crossing? He'd be so, so scathing about it. I'd love that. <laughs> I'd say in a second. Well, thanks for that question. Um, that's it for this week. You can hang out with us in our community on our Discord channel. Uh, you can find the uh, address of our Discord channel on our website, which is at Creighton Crowbar. If you have a question for a future episode, you can send it to our, uh, send to us at questions at creightoncrowbar.com or you can tweet at us at Creighton Crowbar. Uh, you can also listen to this episode, perhaps you already are, and previous episodes and various spin-off uh, podcasts and projects on our YouTube channel, which is at, uh, how I don't know, is it youtube.com slash Crate and Crowbar or is it used? I don't know. So you can find it. You can find it. Crate and Crowbar is, is kindly funded by our Patreon backers. If you'd like to know more about supporting the podcast and all our Bitty spin-off bit projects. Uh, the uh, it's Crate and Crowbar. Oh, no, Patreon.com 
slash Craig and Crowbar. I think that's all the things. Uh, I think so too. Me to say. <laughs> I uh, have been Alex Wiltshire in a slightly dazed and confused state. <laughs> uh, I have been Graham Smith making tiny vegetable people fight. Uh, I've been Tom Senior, and next time I'll find a game I like to talk about. <laughs> Yay! <Woo. laughs> Thanks, Thanks for listening, everybody. everybody. everybody.